Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Fee Stubblefield, CEO of The Springs Living. The McMinnville, Oregon-based provider has 17 communities throughout Oregon and Montana. The company's name refers to the Lehman Hot Springs, a resort in eastern Oregon that Stubblefield's grandfather, Fancho, started in 1925. The Springs Living had a close view of the COVID-19 pandemic as it began to spread through the Pacific Northwest several months ago. But the provider took quick action, launching several campaigns to stop the spread of the deadly disease. Although the effort has resulted in an unexpected short-term financial hit for the mid-sized company, Stubblefield believes it's a price worth paying to keep his employees and residents safe. Before we get to that interview, I would like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. Last year, we received more than 100 entries for consideration. We're looking to celebrate more unique projects this year, including both new development and rehabs that are improving the lives of seniors through innovative design. If you think you have a project that fits that description and are looking to showcase it, visit shnawards.com. Submissions are opening June 1st. The early bird deadline is September 30th, and the final entry deadline is October 31st. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Fee Stubblefield, CEO of The Springs Living. Fee Stubblefield, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. I wanted to start by updating our listeners on the state of COVID-19 at The Springs Living. What are you guys seeing on the ground right now, and how are you meeting this challenge head on? Well, Tim, despite all the early apprehension, and we're still apprehensive and still cautious about it, uh, the numbers are, are pretty good for us. We've had one resident that came in contact with COVID-19 and was tested positive at the hospital. That resident is fully recovered and uh, is actually moving back into the community this week. So one out of over 2,000 residents have tested positive for COVID-19. We're able to contain and limit the outbreak. So there wasn't an outbreak in our community. It, it actually didn't happen. So that we're very fortunate, very happy about that. Uh, we've had four employees that have tested positive, two of them asymptomatic. Two of them had symptoms but never went to the hospital. And so that's about, out of 1,600 employees or so, that's right around a quarter of 1% uh, infection rate for employees. So we feel that's pretty good also. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is fantastic news that so far only one of your residents has tested positive for COVID-19. I know that the Springs started its COVID-19 precautions early, I think at the end of February, right around the time when I came and, and visited you all, maybe a couple weeks after that. But what has the Springs done so far to mitigate the spread of the disease in the past couple of months since then? You know, it's interesting. You guys have done a great job of covering COVID-19 in this pandemic and in reviewing all of your articles and listening to the other leaders across the country, for the most part, everybody's been very aggressive and, and been on this pretty quickly. You know, we're used to dealing with infection control, so we look for things like this. But this one, I think, caught a lot of people early. I, I went back and looked at my records and I sent my first email of concern out to the team on uh, February 2nd. I picked it up on uh, Bloomberg 
alert and then an Oregon healthcare alert on the 31st of uh, January, send it, uh, email out on the 2nd of February. So we actually were working and updating our protocols and we had had some norovirus in the past. And so it was on our mind. On February 28th, the first case was announced in Oregon. So on February 29th, we instituted our protocol. That was our first letter to residents on February 29th, which is on our website. And then we just, you know, we just began a progressive running battle with this virus. Probably the most significant thing we did was started help screening all of our residents. We stopped the communal dining we started paying our employees to stay home. We took the position that, listen, if you're sick or you think you feel like you're going to get sick, just stay home. There was some concern about that. Would that be abused? Would it be causing a bit, you know, undue expense? And I got to tell you, I would credit that program right there, paying our staff to stay home and trusting them. That's probably the number one reason why we have the numbers we have right now. In our minds, we heard some numbers up to potentially a million dollars if you get an outbreak in our communities. So we haven't had any outbreaks in our communities, so we save a lot of money. And I can tell you that our overtime cost overall for extra paid time off is very minimal. Then we started being, we, we limited visitors right away, but then we became more aggressive with it. I, I would say that, you know, we also, and I did this myself, started securing additional PPE. We did an evaluation. Brenda Connolly, our acting chief uh, operating officer uh, created a model that for forecasting our PPE use and we were able to see that we were we didn't have enough supply. So I took on that job myself personally. It's one of the things that I could do and used contacts and we were able to start securing PPE in an amount that made our staff feel safe and our residents feel safe and get it here in time. It just it just eased everything. So getting that PPE, being ready for if an outbreak occurred on the cleaning. We also started having discussions with some friends of ours here that own other companies, uh, Rick Miller of Avenir and then, and Phil Fogg of Marquis, about how we could help support a local testing company. And so we started helping talk through ways of creating testing and using some of the tests that had been developed in other countries to get them here and use them not only for human testing, but environmental testing. So that work started early on. That started in early March. And it takes time to get those things in place. So having that additional resource available and, and knowing that we were working on that gave our team hope that we could respond. And, and it did come in handy, and I can tell you that story in a minute. I would think the other thing that we really did that was key to get the numbers that we've seen right here is we realized a couple of things. One was is it was just obvious that we didn't know anything about this disease. Very little conflicting information. There's been some great YouTube videos out there about the what we know now, but it's exactly the opposite of what we think we should do. And just it's just some really funny things that demonstrate the confusing and the conflicting information here. So we decided that we were going to act as if everybody in our community that came into our community was positive and asymptomatic. So we started a campaign called Stop the Drop. And basically, we started with our employees, basically our healthcare employees first, but then we quickly expanded it to all employees. And then right after that, we expanded it to all residents if they're outside of their apartments or in the community. And it's called Stop the Drop. And what we did was ask people to do droplet suppression. So wear a face covering, wear a mask. That was before we had 
ample quantities of N95s and surgical masks. And so it was amazing the volunteers, the volunteers at our communities, the volunteers at families and friends and complete strangers that around the clock built cloth masks, not only for our employees, but for our residents. And so we started early on because we realized that this virus is going to spread through moist droplets. They're going to be admitted when somebody's speaking, somebody's coughing, and they're in proximity, right? Those three things seem to be the key that outbreaks really love. COVID outbreaks seem to really love, you know, that proximity, intensity, and duration. And so we thought, okay, what can we do? Because we, we don't have enough PPE yet. This is early on. We don't have enough testing yet. Everybody's not sure what actually is going on here. So let's just assume everybody's positive asymptomatic. And that's what we did. Eventually, when we got testing, it was really interesting. In Bozeman, Montana, in our new community up there, we had an employee because of our paid time off benefit. That employee uh, went to the doctor and they refused to test her. She was symptomatic because they didn't have a lot of tests in Montana. So she actually refused to leave the doctor's office and made him test her. It took her three times going back. She never came into the community with symptoms. And she tested positive. So this was early on in Montana, which Montana's done a great job of, of keeping COVID cases down. I think partly it's because it's a big sky country and everybody's spread out. But what they did there is the state of Montana wanted us to test every resident and every employee, which we didn't do here in Oregon when we had one the resident case. And we really thought that it was probably not necessary because nobody else in the community was symptomatic, but we did it. So we flew up a test from here in Oregon, and Montana gave us some tests. I think we flew up 50 that we were able to get our hands on. They had 50 tests, and we tested every resident every point. What we found is that every resident was negative, but we found two employees that were positive COVID but asymptomatic. They were healthy. They were fine. Younger employees. They had no symptoms at all of having COVID-19. So right there, that validated our approach, Tim, that assuming everybody was asymptomatic positive and our stop and drop campaign were really the keys to what we were doing. The other thing I'll just add to that is we, we started an aggressive strategy that kind of added to that uh, called Hold the Line. And two other programs that we did, which we thought were important, was we didn't want our employees having contact out in the general community because that's where they were going to get it. They were going to get it going to the grocery store, going to get dinner uh, on the way home at night, and just going into the general community because it wasn't in our buildings. And so we started two other programs were part of our hold the line strategy. Hold the line strategy, stop the drop was kind of the first key thing. And then the next one was save lives, shop here. So one of our communities in Wilsonville, Oregon, the Springs at Wilsonville, started providing their inspiration and their idea. We just picked it up and thought this is a great idea. So we rolled it out to all of our communities. And so we actually set up stores for basic things that they would need so they wouldn't have to go in the community. Now, this was above and beyond the toilet paper and the other PPE that we provided them from day one. We wanted our staff to feel like like they could protect themselves and their families. So we provided toilet paper and all those hard-to-get things early on. So this was kind of a formal store, and it worked really great. But the other thing that I think is has been very valuable is our what we call our hero meals. And our hero meals, we just decided that our employees, number one, we needed to limit their exposure to the general community. But number two, we felt that they're the front lines. They're the heroes here. They're showing up every single day. And 
they deserve to be recognized and rewarded for that. So we just started, and it wasn't uniform in all the communities. We let the executive directors decide how they would do it. But we started hearing this. We started feeding not only them, but their families. I mean, think about this. So you're working, you're, you're working a hard shift. Everybody's concerned about COVID. There's limited access to supplies. There's limited access to places you can get dinner. You've put in a shift, maybe a double shift, and you got to go home and feed your family. That's a hard thing. And we're asking you, and they want to be safe for the residents. Our staff love our residents. The last thing they would want to do is live with the guilt that they got infected and infected in a resident. And so we just decided that we would start feeding our employees' families. And so that program, we, we kind of did a napkin approach on what it would cost. And we said, you know what? It doesn't matter. We're going to do this because it's way cheaper than having an outbreak in a building. And more importantly, it's the right thing to do for the heroes that are keeping our residents safe. Wow. That is all very interesting to hear. The store, I'm curious, where did the products that you sell in the store come from? Did you just like basically get those through the normal wholesalers that you work with? Or yeah, where did you find the things to sell? That's a great question, Tim. The, that was hard because these programs, we're digesting, our executive team are, is working together and we're digesting all the information that's coming in. But usually when you run a program like creating the store for employees, that takes weeks and months and a long time to get the systems in place, to, to source things, to set it up. And we just didn't have the time. We just had to react. And so our home office team, executive team, was able to come up with a bunch of different ideas and resources. And we just simply put it in the hands of our executive directors, which are a very strong and very capable team. And we gave them suggestions. We, you know, we did everything from running and getting things to uh, working with our suppliers to make sure that we had priority distribution. So our, our vendors stepped up, you know, our vendors stepped up. Local grocery stores stepped up. There's not enough time to talk about all the different ways that we were able to save live shop here to create that store. It was just, it was just a community effort all around, not just inside of the Springs, but people outside of the Springs. And it was just a great effort of collaboration. Well, messy, messy. It was messy, but it was, it worked. We've heard also across the board, you know, expenses are rising. Obviously, fighting a pandemic, that's expensive. There's a lot of short-term things you need to spend money on, you know, what we've just described included. So what has the financial impact of COVID-19 been so far for the Springs Living? I'm just curious how much the Springs has had to spend in order to do all of this to keep on top of the the COVID-19 fight. Sure. So we kind of, uh, when this first hit, we got together and made some estimates and forecasts what we thought we would spend. We figured we'd spend somewhere between, oh gosh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but we figured we'd spend somewhere between, you know, a half a million dollars and 700000 if I remember correctly. And so far, we have spent about $400,000. Most of that is on securing PPE, right? Some of that is being, like in the state of Oregon, is also being reimbursed by workers' comp is what's planned anyway. So we spent around 400,000, you know, our current projection, unless we have an outbreak, if we can, if we can hold off and not have a major outbreak, uh, we'll probably be around half a million dollars for the 17 communities uh, that we've got. So that's, that's the data that we have right now. That's good to know. Obviously a half million dollars is no small sum. The Springs Living is no doubt a competency living provider, and, and I have no doubt that that's something that you can absolutely spend. But 
are you having to find creative ways to make that work for your bottom line? I mean, have you had to look for you know help from I don't know either a REIT partner or maybe even through one of these federal programs like uh, like the PPP or something like that? Well, we've considered everything. You know, we had to. We had to look at. You know, we all have loan covenants and and uh, partners, and we just seen everybody come together. And, and I got to tell you, it was it was about really getting visibility to what could happen. The amazing thing about this crisis is it's really brought a lot of people together and our partners and our investors, which we have a handful of investors that are, that are, that are small investors, kind of friends and family. And then we work with one private equity group, uh, Harrison Street. And we also work with Ventos and we're a joint venture partner with Ventos. And they've been great. They, this has not been about, we have not had people handling us what the bottom line is going to be. It's been about what do we need to do to save residents and save lives. And so we've just seen a solidarity and a focus. You know, Ventas has their program where they're allowing lease deferrals. You know, that's a great, everything helps here, right? Harrison Street's been a great supporter. Of course, we reduced all of our distributions and, 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 and stopped them just to accumulate cash, just not knowing what this was going to be from the financial side of things. And we haven't had one pushback. We've had everybody be completely behind this. Really, the formula is really simple. We have to fight this and win this, and then we can start worrying about the financing. Whatever it costs to get this thing beat and to prove that our profession is a safe place for seniors that were relevant, that for older adults, our communities are the very safest place and the best places to be out there, the cost of failing at that is incalculable. So all the other, the cost of the PPE, the hero meals, all those things are a drop in the bucket. It's a very, very intense focus on saving lives. And I got to tell you, we really did whatever we had to take and we didn't, we just didn't worry about the money. Now there's concerns about that because, oh gosh, it's kind of like you're an airplane, right? You know, one of the, the metaphors we use is, you know, we were like cruising along at 30,000 feet. And guess what? The air got contaminated and we had to shut off the engines. Well, at some point, gravity still is a reality. And at some point, you got to get the engines turned back on and you got to get revenue coming back in because you can't fly forever without revenue. You have to pay the employees. You have to buy the food. You have to deliver the care. You know, we have to do those things and we cannot let our, our quality slip. So, We've had a great experience so far. You know, we're concerned out there, really, that time will tell. We'll know when we get down the road. If we get to the end of the second quarter, we'll be able to see and we'll be able to evaluate co- evaluate covenants. But our, our lenders are another one that have just been been great. We've got a lot of lenders we've worked with, uh, BBBA, KeyBank. Others have just been very supportive and told us, really, don't even worry about your covenants. Now, we're still worried about our covenants and we're still working hard at not breaking any covenants. But the reality is, is right now, none of that matters compared to just keeping buildings clean and safe and saving lives. Yeah. I like that analogy about the plane, by the way, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm curious. So I want to go back to something that you had just mentioned. You talked about how in the beginning of this, part of the equation was simply just getting the recognition that this was happening, that you needed help. So I'm curious, do you sense that there's been a shift in the way 
general society is thinking about about senior living or senior housing now. I know there was some concern at the beginning of the the pandemic that uh, the yeah. senior living industry was being overlooked. So, do you feel like that's changed, or do you think that there's still you know more to do on that front? Oh, I think it's changed, and I think it's going to change. I think when we get done with this, I think the data is going to show that seniors were very safe in our settings. And I hope, you know, I hope it proves that older adults that lived in our communities were safer than if they were in the in their general home and still had to go out and access the community for supplies or risk their family doing so, especially in some of the, the areas of high-intensity outbreak. But I think that the perception is still shifting, and I think we're gaining ground. I can tell you that there were, I think our demise was uh, premature. I think when we get through this, we're seeing people, families being appreciative. At the start of it, we had a lot of concerns like, why are you guys doing this? You can't, you know, don't, we need to go see our parents. And there's a lot of people that didn't understand on those of us that were able to take early action at the end of February. We got a lot of pushback. And we actually, yeah, we just got a lot of pushback. And so I think everybody's now appreciative of the actions that we we took and and see, see how valuable that our profession is to keeping people safe. But we're not there yet, right? I mean, you know, at at this point, um, it's happening. And we still have some work to do. And we have to be vigilant. We have to keep our guard up. But we also have to give, we we also have to find some ways. I mean, this, this isolation, the bigger risk here now is I think people see they're safe. But the bigger risk, if you're an older adult, is saying, wait a minute, I'm an older adult. It's summertime. I want to enjoy life too. I'm not, I just don't want to stay in my apartment the whole time. So I think we all have an obligation of finding safe ways. And I think this is where testing really comes in. And we're experimenting with, along with some other organizations, with some certifications and some environmental testing, both surface and air, that I think will really help create safe environments. I mean, COVID's not in our building. And I think we get, have to give uh, the, the market and the consumer confidence that it's not. But we also have to open up ways of connecting, reconnecting families and having our residents be able to live life, right? So that's our next hurdle here is how do we do that? I mean, it's kind of like we have a rain delay at a baseball game and we don't tell people when the players are going to come back on the field, people will start leaving the stadium. So that's our next big challenge here is to, is to really starting to open up inside of our communities and then be able to give residents access to nature and to outside in a safe way without exposing them and everybody else in the communities to what is an un- unknown future for this virus. I think earlier on the call, you had mentioned that you had joined up with a, with a, a couple other providers in the area. So give me an overview again of what you're doing and and where you think we need to go with regard to testing. It sounds like you think that we need to test basically everyone that is in a senior living community, both staff and resident. Uh, so tell me how you, uh, you think we need to get there. No, I, I don't think we need to test everybody in the community. I think if we're asymptomatic and we're using proper protocols, like our stop the drop program, I don't think it's necessary to test anybody. I think testing is important if you have a flare up. I mean, that's like I said, in, you know, in, in past conversations, you know, COVID is kind of like a, it's like dry lightning in an August thunderstorm. It hits, and if you can get on it and get that fire out quickly, it's not going to spread. And I think that's where testing really comes in. I think testing, you know, the surface and environmental testing, to me, is a real is is hopeful. And there's some really quality providers that are going to be able to offer this resource to us. 
And I think it's not just for now. I mean, this has fundamentally changed senior living. And the consumer is going to be looking for us for not only how we deal with COVID-19, but COVID-20, 21, 22, and so on, and other varieties and other strains. And our infection control is going to have to evolve. Technology is going to be a key part of that. And people are going to have to have confidence that, that they're safest in our settings. And it seems like the people that I talk to, most of the problems right now, from my view, right, on the West Coast and what I read, you know, so this is certainly not scientific. This is just an observ- anecdotal observation about what we're seeing. And it, it looks like the creamy filling on the Oreo cookie seems to be pretty safe for seniors, right? So communities where there's staff, where there's eight state agencies that are engaged and involved, it seems like some of the older skilled facilities are struggling. You know, the ones that have, you know, three and four people in a room and maybe they're dated buildings that seem to be struggling with outbreaks. It also seems like some of the the low-service independent living communities that just don't have the staff, and they're more just housing where seniors have naturally congregated or maybe age-restricted communities, and they just don't have the resources out there, seem to be struggling. I know we have one right here in Newburgh, Oregon, that has had a lot of deaths. So how, you know, so I think, I think what's happening here is the testing can help, but the key is is the staff, the operations, and, you know, the team, especially the team that's at that community, at that community level, right? Us at the corporate offices, home offices here, we don't matter so much other than, you know, we've got to give good strategy and we've got to give the resources and, and we've got to be a resource to them. But really the operations in those communities are the key. So I think, you, I think you'll see testing more and more happen. I think you'll see environmental testing. and I, I But I do not think that, from our experience, what we've seen, we're not advocates testing everybody in the building because we think it's a one-time shot and it's extremely expensive. It's, it should be more used as a targeted response to an outbreak or symptoms. We're actually, the ones that we're using right now, they're more expensive, but we get them within 24 hours. And the kits themselves, what, what we're finding is that not all tests are created equal. And the tests, we're willing to pay more for those tests because, one, they're easier on the person being tested. The swabs and just the kit, the procedure is simpler and it's more comfortable versus some of the things we've seen from state agencies. So not all tests are created equal. I think it's going to be more widely accepted. We'll get ahead of this individual testing soon and we'll get results quick. I think the future is really on uh, being able to to do a snapshot and certify that an environment is COVID-free. Yeah, and I also, and I don't mean to, to, to belabor this point, Fee, I wanted to ask about the other forms of testing that you mentioned, the environmental and the surface testing. What is yeah. what is that, and, and how will that help you get ahead of the, the COVID fight? So the lab we're working with in Portland, they have got a certification, I think it's FDA, I think that's right, for their surface testing. So they've done all their trials. They've proved they've proved the accuracy of this, and uh, uh, and we're actually doing this in our communities right now, trying to to figure out the right protocols for where you should do it, how often you should do it, how it should be used, you know, what's best practice here. But it's actually a surface testing where you go in and can swab the surface for an elevator, and you can tell if there's any COVID nineteen on it, and pretty quickly. They're also working on uh, also be able to roll out and, and, you know, we're prototyping this right now. It's not yet available, but it's coming soon is, is air quality, right? Be able to, to test the air quality. So 
technology innovation, you know, that American spirit is going to help us beat this virus and the ones coming after it. COVID-19 is it's just the start of this. And I think we're going to see people, people safer, people healthier, people living better lives. I and mean, we've seen We've seen the health of our residents' employees. I mean, yesterday we do a 2 o'clock call every day where we review, of 2,000 residents, we review all the, the health data. We only had one resident out of 2,000 yesterday that was symptomatic, right, that had a fever. One. You know, we've done almost 300 tests so far, and our negative rate on those, negative is positive in this case, our negative rate is 98.5% roughly. 98% and a half percent of 300 tests. So we know of all the tests we've done, we only have five in the company, four employees, one resident that's positive. 90.5% of, of people tested are negative. That's good statistics. And we're in Oregon. We know we've been able to not have the intensity we feel for our peers in, and in New York and East Coast and in other locations and certainly in Seattle that have that, that got struck and hit hard when they didn't have as much data as we did. We feel really fortunate and very lucky, and, you know, we, we feel for what they're going through right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and I'm glad that you mentioned the future because, uh, Fee, I wanted to ask, to sort of wrap up today, where you think the future lies? What do you think we need to do next? You know, I've heard some folks say that they think that we need more support from maybe the federal government or from state governments. But I'm curious to hear where you think the road ahead lies to beating the, the COVID-19 pandemic and whatever lies next. Well, you know, we enjoy great state support here in Oregon. You know, our governor's done a great job of helping us protect seniors. But in general, my personal view is this isn't going to get solved by government. It's going to get solved by entrepreneurs and customers. I mean, families and uh, those of us that work in this, we want people safer than anybody. And so I think good old American ingenuity is going to solve, find ways of doing this. What we need is we need the ability to innovate. And technology is going to be a key piece of that. Infection control is here to stay. I mean, Kathy Sweeney on the Nick call I was on with her had a great comment. She said, you know, right before COVID-19, the development world was crazy. I mean, everybody's building, everybody's coming into this space, everybody's building senior housing. And I think it was her, her words. I know it was her words. She, she said, you know, healthcare tourists, this is probably going to be a wake up call for healthcare tourists. The future is going to be a greater appreciation for the operations, for organizations that invest in culture, that invest in systems, that invest in their front line. One of the best things that I think, the silver, one of the best silver lining moments out of this whole COVID-19, Tim, is the fact that our frontline workers, our caregivers, our dishwashers, our maintenance, our housekeeping, our life enrichment, frontline workers are being highlighted, and, there's, and society is seeing the value of those people. I think that's our future. I think we're going to see see more resources, more appreciation, more opportunity. I think we're going to see we're definitely going to see more technology, more investment, and I think we're going to see, which I think our profession is definitely in recent years is really recognizing the value of the operations in this. It's just this is not real estate. Real estate's a component of it, but. These are complex operating companies, and to do that well, you have to have the resources, and you have to invest in those resources. And I see a bright future for senior housing and care. We are relevant. We're here to stay, and we can solve this. But we need the support. We don't need a lot of extra regulation. 
we need to be able to innovate and invest. And we'll do that. Well, Fee, I always appreciate your optimism. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today on Transform. It was great to talk with you. Thanks, Tim. That concludes this episode of Transform. Don't forget to check out the SHN Architecture and Design Awards at shnawards.com. Again, submissions open June 1st, the early bird deadline is September 30th, and the final entry deadline is October 31st. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.